Hi there. God, my voice is back. I'm so psyched. I have done my duty, my civic duty. I've got my COVID-19 shot and I went to see bros. The most important things for any homosexual citizen to do, we're told. Um, and uh, I'm back and ready in the studio in Washington, D.C. And this week we have a conversation which I've been looking forward to because it's it's on my pet topic, really. Uh, it's political theory. And we've invited uh, Yoram Hazoni, who is a philosopher, a Bible scholar, a political theorist. He founded the Shalem Center, a research institute in Israel, and he's currently president of the Herzl Institute in Jerusalem and serves as chairman of the Edmund Burke Foundation in D.C., the author of many books, including The Virtue of Nationalism, his most recent that we're going to talk about today is Conservatism, A Rediscovery. Yoram, welcome, and thanks for joining us all the way from Jerusalem. Andrew, it's a pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. Tell me, because we always start with this, tell me where you were born and grew up and your, who your parents were and how they affected the way you emerged as an adult or a young adult in, in, in society. I, I was born in Rehovot in Israel. I was the uh, the son of a, a physicist. When I was a year old, uh, my my father uh, uh, took up a, a a position at at Princeton University in uh, what was then the very beginning of uh, of uh, computer science, uh, and I kind of grew up in a uh, in an Israeli Israeli cocoon in in uh, there in Princeton, and. Much of much of my outlook came from, uh, I think, from my uh, my father's world worldview, which was uh, um, uh, labor Zionist, national, you know, Jewish nationalist kind kind of a worldview, very very strongly pro tradition. And uh, he and I used to watch the local TV station, uh, WNEW Channel 5, which had a 10, 10 p.m. news broadcast, maybe some of the very, very old listeners, if there are any, will remember that uh, every night there was a debate between two local Jewish personalities, uh, Martin Abend, who was the, the conservative in Sydney Offit, who was the, the, the liberal and much. We'd watch them debate live every night, and uh, my father would uh, 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 grimace Throughout Sydney Offit's presentations, <laughs> and and would say, "This is this is the way that the Roman Empire fell." Is this Offit? He he doesn't understand what what the moral fiber of a country is about, and what you need to maintain it. And here it is, it's decades and decades later, and I'm still saying kind of the same thing. <laughs> You are. You're, maybe it's a definition of a conservative that you don't reject everything that your parents told you. In fact, you kind of see the truth of them. But I love that. I love the idea of two old Jewish guys yelling at each other every night um, because it's nothing is more entertaining. Um, and that was was that the basis of the point counterpoint yep. SNL that, sketch? That, that that is the legend. The legend is that is is that Dan Aykroyd and Jane Jane Curtin and the Jane U. Ignorance slut stuff came came out of that program, but but I can't prove it. <laughs> One of the great joys of being plonked into 
the subculture of the New Republic in the 80s and 90s, which was, was basically it was a, a reprise of all of that. <laughs> People yelling, old Jewish guys, young Jewish guys yelling at each other over politics. And so I came to love it um, and appreciate particularly the Jewish contribution to American political life, which of course is enormous in the intellectual realm, if not in the actual realm of elected politics. So you writing about conservatism, which is, of course has been a, a lifelong interest of mine. And I, I want to just start with some definitions from you. Um, first of all, how would you define basically the contrast between liberalism and conservatism? I know that's a very basic question, but I think if we don't start there, is we're going to get, we're going to lose lose the thread at some point. So tell me, how do you see that okay. distinction? I'm going to give the very simplest version of this, and then you know, if you like, we can we can elaborate it and refine it. The simplest version is that if if you are someone who be, who thinks that it's appropriate and reasonable to uh, to view the political world, the political arena, and political issues primarily through the prism of the liberties of the individual and the consent of the individual, then, then you are very likely a liberal. And if you begin in a different place and you begin by saying, well, look, that there exists a certain uh, nation, tribe uh, of which I am a member, and my interest is how to improve it and strengthen it and sustain it through the the generations then then you're a conservative now i i hasten to say that you know a great many conservatives care a great deal about individual liberties and the the, the anglo-american conservative tradition is it, it's uh, almost impossible to think of it without including individual liberties as a key part of it Nonetheless, I think that that the very simple schematic uh, uh, dichotomy that I they, that I offered is true. That conservatives approach the world, beginning with the question: How can we sustain what we're seeing, or strengthen it, or improve it over generations? And and liberals begin with the the individual and more or less stay there. When I look at and what you're discussing here is Anglo-American conservatism, and you 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 root it in English political thought back to the 15th century, it seems to me that, that one of the things that is, is absolutely integral, as you say, to Anglo-American political thought is, is, is liberalism as a system, as an order that emerged uniquely through the historical processes that occurred in England. So that you kind of have, you could say, that Anglo-American conservatism is a kind of fusion and that's going to be a trigger word for you, but a, f <laughs> a fusion of liberalism and conservatism. In other words, there is a there is a conservative epistemology. Let me put it that way: of of liberalism. In other words, that in a particular context of England, in a particular context of a relatively weak monarchy um, and a, a powerful civil society, that over the centuries. Uh, by virtue of its old traditions and its competing interests within the society, there emerged in England and then eventually in Britain um, a way of life that paid enormous respect to individual liberty and uh, put very firm limits on the power 
of the state. You have your body, habeas corpus. They cannot take that away from you. And this emerged, obviously, out of a conf out of a period of extraordinary religious conflict, which is hard for people today to even understand, but was ripping Europe apart. So why would it not be understood that conservatism in the Anglo-American uh, tradition really is a is a version of liberalism. Well, look. The, the reason that I begin the book this is this is a very important question. Obviously, the reason I begin the book in the 1400s, and there, uh, you know, I, I I think probably a lot of listeners will say, "Oh my gosh, what kind of you know kind of crazy book is that?" The reason I begin it in the 1400s is because I think it's if I could get people uh, to conservatives and liberals to to read one one little book. Uh, John Fortescue's *In Praise of the Laws of England*, um, which is uh, out now in a you know very very uh, easy to read uh, edition with the, the spellings corrected and everything. I, I think that people, most people, actually read the book find it shocking because be, precisely because uh, it's written in the 1400s and yet it's immediately obvious from the first pages that many of the things that today are are associated. You know, are asserted to be the inventions of liberal democracy. Um, in, you know, including the the uh, uh, the the uh, uh, the division, of the separation of powers, and the the, the balance uh, checks and balances among the different branches of government, uh, the bicameral legislature, and the 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 apportionment of duties between the king and the legislator, the the uh, the, the sanctity of of private property. And the uh, the concept that you know even the king of England can't enter the home of the you know the, the the lowliest peasant without his permission, much less to take something, and Fortescue's you know assertion that that England is the freest of all nations because of the sanctity of property, and, and the jury trial, and we can simply go on. So many of the things that when we go to school today, we're told that these are the inventions of uh, uh, of reason. And that they 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 were uh, in, discovered or perfected in you know in the 1700s at some point, and I think it's important for people to understand that this is simply not true. That a great deal of what today is asserted to be uh, an obvious dictator of reason, universally accept, uh, accessible to to all human beings in all times and places, is in the fact in fact the uh, the the product of this astonishing uh, English tradition uh, built upon the common law and rooted ultimately in in uh, in the Bible, and and one of the things that you bring out, I think, rather well in the book, is that there are two also competing understandings of the American Constitution and the American founding, which is one that we are constructing this new republic on the basis of timeless ideals that we have we have we have deduced from pure reason that are applicable to everybody on earth, uh, which of course there is plenty of rhetorical evidence that that was a big strain of the, of the arguments of the founders, but also, but you are saying, which is essentially that the revolution was a sort of conservative revolution in as much as it was designed to protect and defend the inherited uh, wisdom, as it were, of the English common law of, 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 of the rights of Englishmen, which I think is a phrase that came out, uh, uh, that in other words, was not an appeal to abstract enlightenment principles, but was in fact an appeal to 
sustain the particular tradition of individual liberty and ordered government that they had inherited from the motherland of England. And that seems, am I, am I paraphrasing that correctly? Uh, yes, I think I think that the beginnings the beginnings of the American Revolution are, are certainly are certainly couched in in those kind of the rights of Englishmen kinds of uh, um, uh, that that kind of rhetoric and that kind of legal reasoning, but uh, th there's there is a uh, a kind of a sliding back and forth in the American Revolution that that is unfamiliar I think for probably to many listeners uh, at at. The Declaration of Independence is certainly um, uh, couched in parts of it, at least. Uh, the, the the famous phrase phrases of you know we hold these truths to be self evident, and then uh, the assertion of all sorts of self evident axioms of of uh, uh, of political reason. Th that is th that is certainly uh, was and continues to be throughout American history characteristic of the the Jeffersonian strain. Uh, in in American political theory, but that strain is not traditionalist. That strain is rationalist. Meaning, uh, Jefferson uh, n never hesitated throughout his long career to 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 assert things such as, for example, that the the uh, uh, that each generation is should be treated uh, as a foreign nation uh, in comparison to the previous generation. That the that each generation does not owe anything to the past and future generations but should have a constitution that suits itself and this this was i think sort of the 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 initial impulse of the american revolution uh but as the uh very 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 early on in the in, in the revolutionary war as uh, washington and his officers and and those most the businessmen and lawyers most directly concerned with attempting to actually run the war effort. Uh, very early on in the war, they they came to the conclusion that what America was missing was something very very similar to the uh, uh, to the English central government. And uh, of course, you know, a king had never visited America's shores, and and America never had an aristocracy. Nevertheless, um, they. They looked to uh, to uh, England for a model of a government that would be strong enough to be capable of uh, raising taxes, which they couldn't do, uh, raising armies, which they couldn't do, um, moving them, uh, moving them, signing peace treaties, enforcing the peace. All of these things that the that the, that they knew that the English government could do and the American government could not do led them. Uh, and in particular, the the Federalist Party, Washington and Jay, uh, Hamilton, Adams, Governor Morris, who ended up being the principal draftsman of uh, of the Constitution of 1787, they and their party uh, quickly turned to a much more conservative view that was not based on uh, uh, universal and eternal self-evident truths, but was based on what they knew that the English government could do that they could not do. And for this reason, the, the historian Gertrude Himmelfarb once uh, told me and my, uh, my colleagues a long time ago that, that uh, we know that Providence uh, was smiling on uh, the American revolutionaries because Jefferson and Tom Paine were not in the country when, they, when the Constitution was drafted and therefore were not in a <laughs> position to stop what was basically a, 
a a reaction, a a a conservative restoration of much of the English Constitution in 1787. But here's what I see there. Here's what I see in this American experiment. At the very beginning, there is a tension here. There's a tension between its liberal and conservative aspects. Yeah. So there are in constant, rather creative tension, which of course is part of the genius also of the English political experiment, that it, it alternates between parties of change and parties of, of, of stability. And, and because the society needs both, it has to it has to change because it's constantly changing. It just is changing because human beings are dynamic individuals and history happens. People invent things, new ideas come around, all those kind of things. And yet sustaining some kind of continuity and integrity in all of this is part of what the conservative attempts to do. Um, you root it very much in the epistemology of something that we have already known. Uh, as opposed to something we can deduce a priori. And that does seem to me to be the critical aspect of conservative thought, which is that reason is limited, that we can't know everything, that at the very root of the conservative temperament is a suspicion of certainty and a reliance, therefore, upon the inherited wisdom of the past. Is that, is that um, I mean... My own book about conservatism really centered itself on this distinction between doubt and faith. And conservatism, in a way, was an attempt to say, how are you? Are you sure? Are you right? Uh, why, why would you say that? And how can that be argued? And don't we have existing traditions and institutions that, that tell us otherwise? Is that, is, am I... Am I Summarizing that yes, correctly from your point I, of view, I, I think you you stated that beautifully. But you know, let, lest we fall into just you know an easy self satisfied agreement with one another, let me just make things a little bit more. That's not going to last, Durham. <laughs> I'm just I'm just doing my best. Okay. So just, you're, you're just starting a thought. <laughs> on, you see, wait. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm just softening <laughs> you up. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate it. Uh, look, I. I I would I would say that there are three things that uh, distinguish the, um, the 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 rationalism of the, the universalist rationalism of a Jefferson or a Paine from the, uh, the the views of their their more conservative opponents. You know, wh wh whether it's a, a Burke in the UK or whether it's Washington and 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 his. Uh, party in, in the United States, those three things are first of all the the tremendous epistemological difference that you just described. That for for uh, for for Jefferson, it made sense to have a revolutionary foreign policy that would support uh, bringing the what he understood to be the blessings of liberty to all countries in 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 Europe and around the world. Uh, because he thought that that these things were the dictates of reason, and therefore, you know, you you just need to give people a nudge, and they'll all adopt it everywhere. Whereas Washington's much more skeptical uh, foreign policy uh, and domestic policy was 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 based on the idea that that uh, different nations are have different traditions and are held to, together in different ways, and that. Uh, you couldn't simply export a revolution and know that you weren't quickly going to lead to a, a catastrophe. And so his his concept was uh, was that that America should wish 
all governments well, uh, which was certainly not, not Jefferson's view. Let me just add quickly two other things, though, which is that the, uh, uh, the, the conservatives tend to be uh, religious people, uh, which for reasons that, that you were just hinting at, that, uh, that their skepticism about uh, human reason also often goes hand in hand with, uh, with a, uh, a, a, a humility that allows them to accept inherited religious tradition and, and also national traditions. And I would say that the, that the idea of the, the nation, nationalism, and the idea of the nation is a third plank that distinguishes contemporary liberals from contemporary conservatives. And, and we, can already, we can already see this in, in, in the American founding, that the, uh, the, the idea that Americans had to be a, a, a united nation and that their, their uh, constitution, it, it, the first pur purpose of the constitution of 1787 was, was uh, a more perfect union that that kind of a view is a very conservative view that it's the role of government not only to protect individual liberties but also to cultivate religion and morals and also uh, a, a unity among the people. Let me just question a little bit your connection of religious faith with epistemological doubt. Um, because in certain critical thinkers, when I think of Edmund Burke, I do not think of a passionate religious person. Uh, he was a very complicated person. I don't think of him even as a nationalist because he was bifurcated by Ireland and England. I don't think of him as a Tory because he literally wasn't a Tory. He was a Whig. Uh, so at the very beginning of all this, I, there's a, I find in what you're saying, especially about religion, to be too too easy, too packed. And in fact, you could have a skeptical view of human nature and human reason, which might lead one also to a skepticism of one's ability to know God. And certainly you see that in a critical, I would argue, conservative figure, David Hume, who appears almost nowhere in your book, uh, who, who was absolutely a epistemological conservative, perhaps one of the greatest uh, philosophers of doubt, who nonetheless uh, was, was, was a deist. I mean, many of these uh, early American founders were not exactly enthusiastic religious people. They were actually 18th century deists at some level with a certain amount of skepticism about the human ability to know God. Look, there are many, many very good topics for us to pursue in, in, in the things you just said. Let, let me just uh, begin by saying that, uh, that I too love David Hume. And uh, and I've actually uh, published a couple of essays on uh, on Hume, and I think there's a great great deal to learn from him. And and one of the things I'm one of the many things I admire him is uh, uh, about him is his uh, his uh, careful and judicious use of skepticism. Um, but the, the 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 question of the place of tradition is uh, is is more complicated than simply asking whether. You know whether how religious were certain philosophers because uh, I, I, I so you agree that they weren't that, that in these particular cases they weren't combining skepticism of universal reason with passionate belief in the biblical God au contraire that's, that's look that's certainly true true in in Hume's case I I I don't think I agree with you re with respect to Burke but it may. It may be that our views are not so different. I, I, I think that the crucial point about Burke 
is to begin with, it's a mistake to think of him as the first conservative. Um, it, it's true that the words liberal and conservative were not yet in use in, in Burke's day. They, 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 they appear in their current, something like their current use is only at the beginning of the 1800s. Uh, but I think it's very easy to, to, to understand that Burke couldn't have been the first conservative since what he was doing was explicitly defending the common law tradition and the, 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 uh, the, the, the English constitutional inheritance explicitly uh, and emphatically, including the established church, uh, the monarchy, the aristocracy, um, he was defending all of these traditional institutions, uh, and he did not invent the tradition he was defending. Uh, when, uh, uh, absolutely, when, yes. He, so he felt, we, he so felt the, rev, the French Revolution required him to, to kind of mount a defense, an intellectual defense of something he didn't feel the need to defend previously, because only now was it really being confronted with a, a real enemy, that, that the universal rights of man, a new dawn for humanity. And suddenly the English constitution looks like this rickety old, boring, uh, tedious thing. And he was... He was forced, therefore, at that moment to come up with a philosophical well, he, defense he, he of the English come way up of life. With it. I, see, I, 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 I don't think. I, okay, I, I don't, I don't I, mean no, come I, up I, with because there were plenty no, of people I before him. I understand. That image is true because I think that it, it does an injustice to to uh, to great cons Anglo conservative thinkers like like Fortescue and Hooker and Selden and and Clarendon and uh, and Hale. All of these people were. All of these were. Uh, were jurists and political theorists who faced uh, immense challenges, uh, either from uh, the the uh, the universal claim, claims of uh, uh, of the the Holy Roman Empire and and uh, and and uh, and uh, the Catholic Church, or from Protestant revolutionaries in in their own country who, who also were very very similar. They were kind of the ancestors of. Uh, of uh, today's uh, uh, Enlightenment liberal rationalists, although they, they, it wasn't Enlightenment liberalism, it, it was a, a universal rationalist Protestantism uh, that that justified their 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 revolution, and the conservative tradition is uh, goes back all of these centuries to uh, to thinkers, almost all of whom, and Hume is certainly an exception, but almost all of them uh, were. Were both um, very skeptical about uh, the the certitudes of all human knowledge, and that included what people claimed that they knew on the basis of religion. All of them are skeptics to one degree or another, and at the same time, all of them were uh, were uh, deeply committed to the uh, to the religious institutions of the of uh, of the English nation as as, as a key part of uh, of the tradition. And I, I think when you go back and 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 read those works, it's much easier to understand what it is uh, uh, where people like uh, like Burke or Hamilton are coming from, because unlike us, they all knew that tradition. They read those books, and so for, for them, skepticism could go with uh, together to, together with with uh, being quite serious about religion. But the religion that they supported, which you might call was settled somewhat in the era of Queen Elizabeth I, the Anglican settlement, was a strike against Puritanism. It was an attempt to resist yes. 
religious or theocratic certitude. Absolutely. It was, um, I always remember an old professor of mine at Oxford that said he was believed in the Church of England as a bulwark against religion. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and the key here is a, 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 an understanding of religion, which is not really not evangelical. It's not passionate. It is extraordinarily pragmatic and prudential. I remember, I remember uh, an, another Tory uh, figure in my childhood. Um, just there was a way in which it was Easter, Easter Sunday, and I went over for brunch, for Easter brunch. And he, there was a way in which he said this. He said, uh, welcome, dear boy. Happy Easter. The Lord is risen. Have a drink. <laughs> and that's Anglicanism. It's, 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 it's not... It was the Catholics that had this passion for absolute truth, or it was the Puritans or the Anabaptists and all the other crazies that came over to America in part, who also, but the English religious tradition was not very zealous. Um, in fact, it was, it felt burned by zeal and, and tried to temper itself in a much more skeptical and moderate way. Look, I, I, I... That I'm very sympathetic to what 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 you're describing, but I'd like to be a little bit more careful. I, you know, since I, I've I've lived most of my life uh, among Orthodox religious people, and and I'm myself an Orthodox religious person, and on on the one hand, uh, every community has its uh, its zealots and its fanatics. On the other hand, every community you know has its pragmatists and and its moderates. Uh, and and you know I may surprise you, but I think that uh, I think that uh, that when you start getting to know these these the, these deep religious personalities better, you'll find that sometimes the most passionate and zealous, uh, ardent, passionate, zealous uh, uh, re re religious personalities are also pragmatists at the same time. And I've seen I've seen all of this many times. So. Look, I don't want to be stupid about it. I I, I want to embrace your uh, your suggestion that there is something about uh, about Anglicanism uh, in its historic dimension, which allows, which which uh, permits a a a greater pragmatism, a greater uh, willingness to allow other countries to be other countries without you know declaring them to be. Uh, uh, instantly and Im Im immediately wrong on all issues, uh, a, a willingness to entertain certain kinds of tolerance in, in, in the country for the sake of political stability. I think you're right. I think all of that exists there in that Anglican tradition that, that, that Burke is inheriting. I just want to be careful because I don't want to, uh, to assert that the Catholics never had that, and the Presbyterians never had that. I, I, I think that that would be going too far. Well, um, yes, but the Catholics and the Puritans definitely had a more clear sense of religious truth and 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 the importance and salience now, of would, religious I, truth to dominate every part I, of their I, life. I, I, I would not. Um, I, I would not say that that the Anglicans were less concerned with truth. The the problem again here, as soon as we get to truth, the problem is. Uh, that there, there's a fundamental divide in religious thought as well as in secular thought. There's a fundamental divide between ep epistemological, um, uh, uh, um, uh, let's call them dogmatists, 
people who believe that certain things are self-evident, whether they're self-evident to reason or they're self-evident through scripture, but they believe that they're that many things are self-evident and the deductions infallibly follow. That's one kind of a religious mind and one kind of a religious personality. And the, another kind of religious personality emphasizes the, the side of the humility, humility the, the weakness of, of human reason, the weakness of human capacity for true interpretation. And uh, by the way, these, these things are also not, not only in Anglicanism, but they're very, very strong in, in the Jewish rabbinic tradition uh, in, in, in which I was trained, in which uh, the, the issue of truth comes, comes down to uh, a, a multiplicity of legitimate perspectives because of the, the inability of human individuals to penetrate God's mind. And that is something that uh, a, a, a very, that a deep Anglican thinker like, like uh, Hooker or like Selden, these, these are men who were capable of intense, fervent piety while at the same time understanding that just that piety dictates that they that they have to limit the claims that they make uh, in terms of what their own minds can know of God's mind. That's not. I agree with you, uh, uh, and I, I appreciate that clarification because it is true. But it's it's not. That's not the temperament of, of many of the American founders who have a much more desiccated, abstract, and rather distant idea of what religion might be and are actually a little nervous of it because of course it can get people to do things they would otherwise never do and if you're coming out of the 17th century uh and you see exactly the costs of religious zeal and fervor you're gonna have that kind of slight uh uh distance from it let's put it that way would you agree with that that the american founders were not Anglicans in that sense, they were they had they had they'd gone to another level of slight disenchantment. No, I, I I don't agree with that. I I I think you're absolutely right that that is a wonderful that's a fair description of Jefferson and Paine and of many others. But if you try to understand the place of uh, re religion in the Federalist Party, the Federalist Party was the party that actually uh, defended. Uh, uh, established churches, where, whereas as Jefferson, Jefferson w was against established churches, and by the time, and, and used the presidency to eliminate them in states where they still existed, but the Federalists were in favor of established churches, and I, 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 th I think it's a very, very good um, snapshot of uh, of what the Federalist Party, the, the the early American Nationalists, what their view of of uh, church establishments was because they thought it was completely reasonable that different different American states should have different churches in different arrangements, different settlements. And by the way, this also was inherited from England. People don't really realize this that that the United the 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 uh, uh, the United Kingdom that there was a a Church of England which was Anglican, obviously. There was a Church of Scotland, which was Presbyterian, and a Church of Ireland that was you know, some, some other kind of thing. And these different established churches uh, existed under a single united monarchy. And th that, that kind of pragmatism, I, I think, in those days was able to, uh, to coexist with, uh, 
with a, a serious and passionate religion. I don't think that there is a, 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 a clear view that says, no, it was, it was the fiery radicals who, who uh, you know, who were the Jeffersonians who believed in God, whereas the, the skeptics in Washington camp were deists. That, that, that's just not the case. The majority of the, uh, of the more religious people were in the Federalist camp. They were the traditionalists, and many of them were just very good skeptics, and much more so than Jefferson. That brings me to uh, your story of America, which I think is, is important here, which is that you... You're, you're drawing an Anglo-American conservatism from both the English sources, but also, indig I use that word indigenously, or at least um, that's not quite right, but among the Americans as well. Um, and obviously religion is part of your argument here about what conservatism should be. But you call it, we, we, we've dis discussed the distinction between conservatism and liberalism. Tell me what you think the distinction is between conservatism as one might understand it and national conservatism, which is the the phrase that uh, you guys have kind of come up with to distinguish uh, your vision from uh, what most people would understand as American conservatism. Could you tease out that distinction? Yes, sure. Let me begin by saying that I, I think that the that uh, the term national conservatism or nat natcons, uh, which uh, uh, I, I, I had a, a, a hand in framing it and I, I'm associated with it and I'm proud of it, but, um, but I do think it's an awkward phrase and I think it's somewhat redundant because, you know, as you, you can see from, from just, you know, e even just in the first chapters of my book, I think that, uh, that Anglo -American the Anglo-American conservative tradition uh, precisely because it is so biblical, it is so um, uh, rooted in the Bible and especially the, the 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 Old Testament. Precisely because of that, the the idea of uh, England as a nation uh, and Scotland as a nation and America as a nation, the the idea of the nation is at at the very heart of the. Uh, of the Anglo-American conservative tr traditions, it's it, it, tradition. It's it, it, it's one of the key concepts that you find absolutely everywhere. And but why is it? Why is that biblical? Uh, well, because the the it's biblical because the first the first half of the Old Testament, from Genesis through uh, the Book of Kings, is the story of this of a single nation, uh, and of course the you know the prophets of Israel are interested in a message. Uh, beginning with Moses, are interested in a message for all mankind that you know exceeds only Israel. But nonetheless, this, the 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 story of the Bible is the story of a particular nation which enters into a covenant with God, um, and which is given uh, borders by God. Uh, Israel is the, as far as we know, Israel is the first the first nation in, in, in the, the ancient world to be given borders by its own God and told you're not allowed to cross them because the other nations, um, that, that, you know, that they have their own land and their own ways to God. And so uh, what, what happens is that the, as, as uh, Professor Adrian Hastings, you know, 20 or 30 years ago published a, a famous book about how nationalism enters into the Western tradition, and his argument, which at this point has been adopted by, you know, uh, 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 also I, th I think a couple of dozen really interesting scholars writing on this subject, 
um, his 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 claim was that wherever the Hebrew Bible is translated into the vernacular, wherever the Hebrew Bible is uh, allowed to have a uh, a great influence on what's taking place in uh, among the nations of Europe, um, the idea of the independent nation with a direct direct relationship to God comes from that. Uh, from 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 that that careful reading of the Hebrew Bible, well, it could come from many other places no, no. as well. I mean, if you if you take England, which is our proximate example, yeah. it's an island. Um, it doesn't have to have its borders dictated by God. Um, it has historically not been that religious, insofar as it was religious. Um, it was definitely religious in the early modern period. It was religious with respect to Catholicism and with the, the great pan-European anti-nationalist uh, Catholic. Okay, so I'm going to surprise you. Um, and, and so there is, there is the, the relationship of the Old Testament to nationalism seems to me to be a real, a real reach. Uh, it's an attempt to place religion at the center of what it means to be a nation when you don't need anything like that to be a nation. You have to have a common experience, a common language, uh, common history. Uh, it can come and go. It does not require in any way uh, some reference to Israel. Okay, so let, 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 let's just dwell for a, a moment on the historical part, and then, then, then let's go to the really important question, which is, can, you know, nations without religion. But let First of all, we have we have many examples besides England. Uh, Professor Hastings' key example was was uh, was the French the French nation, and to this day, if you go if you if you if you tour France and you look at the cathedrals there, you have to ask yourself the following question: Why is the Cathedral of Notre Dame? Uh, why why does it have all of the kings of Israel and Judah? Uh, on, uh, sculpted uh, all around the perimeter of, uh, of of the of the front of the building. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. If the French don't don't need the image of Israel in order to uh, you know in, to, in order to be a nation, if they don't need the Bible, then what on earth are their churches doing uh, with all those kings on them? I mean, that that that. Well, they're reflecting. They're reflecting the long history of various aspects of their own. Yes, that's right. They, that they, it doesn't mean that they are centering the concept of France well, and Israel. Well, just, 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 just like the Poles and the Hungarians, also uh, ba based the, based their image of of uh, of their nation as an independent nation. Now, let let me just emphasize the issue of independence. I'm not saying that nations were invented by the Bible. Obviously, there were, the, you know, the, there have been nations as long as there have been human beings, as far as we know. It's the idea that a nation deserves its own freedom, its national freedom from uh, imperial rule by some other nation. That's the issue that the the biblical prophets wrestle with, and. But again, you don't need them. You just you just don't right. want your country to no, be invaded. We're, we're, I mean, asking, we're asking a very very simple uh, question, which is not whether you need it in theory, but whether historically there's any other source, because because throughout European historically there were plenty of other sources. There was plenty like of other what? sources to what it meant to be English. No, no, no. Name, and... name another name a non-biblical source of the idea of national independence that was relied upon by the English tradition or any other tradition. Well, let's let's say um, the Church of England, the very 
initiation of the Protestant Reformation in Britain, in England, was simply saying, screw you, uh, Pope. Um, I want to run my own country and my own church because I want a divorce and you won't give well, it to me. That's well, how that's how well, independent well, the, uh, England became because a king uh, couldn't couldn't remarry. I mean, that's that it wasn't some abstract idea of Israel. It was a, a pragmatic attempt to say, OK, at this point, the church is intervening in our right to do our own thing, or in fact, one person in, in Henry VIII, uh, and therefore separated from them. Now, you could come up with, you, and no doubt they justified the nationhood of England with all sorts of other things, and I'm no doubt that they invoked the nation of Israel, but, but come on, it's, not, it's, it's, it's really not that central. <laughs> well, look, you, you are certainly expressing the, uh, the, uh, the contemporary view of the history. And, uh, okay. and I, you know, uh, what can I say? But you see, I think you're reaching to find some deeper religious component say, to nationalism that really is not necessary. I, 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 it's necessary for no. you, for your project, which is to some extent to attempt to, to re-energize religious identity as, as fused with the nation. But it's not. Why, why would I care so much? Okay. Seriously, I, 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 if if I thought, if I thought, like you do, that you know you can simply have a nation existing, you know that 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 uh, na nations don't need any kind of religious framework; they just kind of exist of their uh, of of their own. I, I think my worldview would simply be very different, and I I, I you I think. Well, that would mean, for example, today that a country like Britain, let's take the same case, is not a nation anymore. It's certainly not bound by a single Why religious not uh, be a nation. Uh, I've completely lost because it doesn't have a common religion. Look, every nation, every nation, every nation, every tribe, every family. I mean, I'm talking about it, it, every human uh, loyalty group, groups that are bound by a shared loyalty has to one degree or another some kind of common common premises. We can call it a public religion or a public philosophy. And and we can say well, hold on. The religion and philosophy are very different well, things. Not from, not, not um, I'm simply saying okay. you don't. Religion doesn't have to be integral to the nation. Make this uh, 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 this point easier for people to understand. I'm not saying that you know whatever it is that that you understand to be the distinction between religion and philosophy. Whatever that is, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that there is such a thing as what today the people like to call the, the guardrails, the inherited framework that is common to the great majority, or at least the most the the, uh, the the majority of the people within a certain nation or tribe or society. That is that those guardrails are inherited. I I think it's reasonable to call that a a public philosophy or a public religion. I don't think those words make very much much difference for this purpose. If we look at America today and we ask, does America does America still have uh, Christianity as uh, you know as it as its you know as as its public philosophy? Certainly not. Uh, but it does have a public philosophy. It does have a public religion. It was it was uh, 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 liberalism of one kind or another, from, from, at least from the Second World War uh, un, uh, until the despicable events of of the year uh, 2020, when when you and many other good liberals uh, found it difficult to remain in your in in, in the institutions that that had been your home. Why? Because there was a shift in the 
in, in the public religion, I would say, from liberalism to this woke neo-Marxism that's tormenting uh, you and me and all of us alike together. And the question that, we're, that, that we face today and that these thinkers we're talking about faced historically is when the public religion is being challenged, what, what do you do? How, do, you, do you repair it? Do you overthrow it? And we are we are living in a time of uh, in, in in which the 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 majority of most views most of the competing views say overthrow overthrow burn it down, and the the idea that you need to have some kind of inherited tradition that's being built up if you want the kind of moderation tolerance skepticism that you and I both actually want that 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 I think is at the heart of you know what 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 you and I probably disagree about is. If we're going to save America or Britain, for that matter, or, or the West at this point, from uh, from woke neo-Marxism becoming the established uh, the established public philosophy or public religion everywhere, if we're going to do that, can we do that without something like a traditional religion? And I, I, I imagine you'll say no, but I. That's a fascinating question. It's a really important question, um, and. I'm glad we get to it, but I, I, don't, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves because I'd like you to explain or elaborate your understanding of post-war American liberalism, which, which, which involves conservatism, uh, as you understood it, really. In some ways, let me put it this way, that post-war conservatism is a kind of conservative defensive liberalism yeah. that Toryism or even uh, 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 Reaganism was essentially an attempt to restore liberal principles against collectivism or indeed against Soviet communism as a, a contrast. Um, and I think your critique in some ways is that they, they failed uh, to sustain liberalism because it didn't have enough of an animating religious force. Is that, is that, am I getting that right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll just let yeah. you elaborate right. exactly yeah. how you think post-war American conservatism sort of came, ran aground. Yeah, I, put I, it that way. Let's put it that way. I, I don't think that what you just said is my view, although I, I know people who think things like that, and it's certainly de defensible view. I, I, I would say something somewhat different. I would say that, uh, that, the United States and and uh, much of Europe were, were still, to a very significant degree, traditional traditionalist and traditional uh, and Christian societies. Um, through uh, FDR, through Eisenhower, I I think it's almost impossible for us today to to imagine an American president talking about World War II the way that. Uh, that that FDR and Eisenhower did, where they 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 explicitly described it as a war between uh, the the, the God-fearing democracies and the the atheist totalitarian regimes. They they didn't know it was a war for liberal democracy because they didn't even use the term. For them, God-fearing democracy was was enough. Uh, Eisenhower uh, and and his generals spoke spoke about. Uh, World War II as a religious crusade, and the the religion they were talking about was 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 Christianity, not liberalism. All all of that is uh, swept away in the uh, in the post war years, when uh, the the I, I I think the the first clear sign of it is in 1947 when when the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in 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 uh, Everson versus versus Board of Ed Education proposes 
that actually religion in America should be privatized. That's the first place where you find the expression separation of church and state being used as, as though it is characteristic of the American Constitution and used to, uh, to over, overrule religious public uh, institutions in, you know, th throughout the 48 states. Thereafter, I think that what, what Justice Hugo Black and, and uh, the, the rest of the majority of the Supreme Court and, and subsequently the majorities in Congress also and presidents were working with them. I think that the correct way to understand what they were doing was to, to attempt to invent a, uh, a, 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 a tradition that is reasonably called liberal democracy, which is without the historic uh, nationalism, the nationalist particularism, without the historic Christianity and biblicism, of uh, American public life. And the same thing happened in, in, in other countries as well. So uh, the, the, by the time we get to, uh, to Reagan, I, you know, I, I, I was, was a, a very enthusiastic Reagan supporter um, uh, in the 1980s when I was in, in college. And, and I continue to be an enthusiastic Reagan supporter. And I reject a lot of the criticism of him uh, that, uh, that, that you hear from the right today. But I think people just don't remember the Reagan coalition the way that I remember it. I remember Reagan being uh, being elected uh, on on a platform that was known to be uh, nationalist and uh, pro-religious uh, to to a, an extent and a degree that that uh, that was considered to be frightening by you know not not only by 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 the left but many republicans considered considered it to be frightening to have have the likes of Jer Jerry Falwell and Billy Graham and uh, the the idea of a constitutional amendment to return prayer to the schools that the 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 religious nationalist side of Reagan has been i think suppressed and uh, if you ask you know did it uh, did it fail? Yes, I think it failed. Uh, to put it simply, why did it fail? Because after Reagan and Thatcher uh, were gone, the nationalist and religious aspects—I uh, maybe you're right—that they were that they were kind of vestigial. The religious and nationalist aspects of the uh, the, the the Reagan movement and and conservatism in those days uh, quickly dropped out and were replaced by by. As essentially what one new world order liberal internationalism uh, where the idea of of uh individual liberties as as the one necessary law that would be uh accepted or perhaps even imposed on the entire world uh, that to me is a is uh, is a, demonstrates the stunning failure of anglo-american conservatism which which simply gave way to to liberal internationalism and globalism almost immediately after Reagan and Thatcher left the scene. Well, I mean, let's let's take the British example. Did it? Um, uh, <laughs> the the British Conservative Party had its extraordinary liberal phase under Thatcher. I will point out to you that it was Margaret Thatcher that proposed the single market for Europe. Uh, it, it was, uh, but nonetheless, she was also an old school nationalist. She would go to conferences and bang her handbag <laughs> on the table and say, we want our money back. <laughs> she, she did, uh, literally, ha she actually, <laughs> she wielded a handbag <laughs> in Lady Bracknell fashion. 
um, to make a point about nationalism. And of course, this tension between nationalism and liberalism, which you were right to point out, split the Conservative Party dramatically into so until it became Brexit, until you actually had this moment of truth where are we going to pick nation over liberalism or liberalism over nation? And they picked nation, uh, and which I probably would not have voted for, but I understand from your point of view. But when I look back and I think, was, was Thatcherism a religious movement? I mean, not at all. And, and, and to some extent, Reaganism was, but the context of all of this is the decline of religious faith everywhere across the West, which you might regard as caused by this, but surely it's more complicated than that. It, it, the, 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 the certainties of, of, of religion that you might have experienced in the 1950s, if you think of Catholic, American Catholicism in the 1950s, an incredibly potent, uh, rich, diverse, uh, intellectual and communal tradition. Nonetheless, by the 80s and 90s, it begins to clearly lose its, its power and its force. Um, in the 21st century, we've seen absolute collapse, even in America, because America was the exception that we always said, well, you know, religion's over, except America kind of proves it isn't over. Maybe it's good. But now it seems America is also yeah. collapsing. So in other words, how do you construct a politics upon religion when no one's religious anymore? Um, look, you... No, I'm not exaggerating, uh, no, I, but when, no, when, when religion has faded I away. Don't, I don't think you're exaggerating. I, I, I think your description is, is, uh, uh, is quite accurate and, and, and fair. And I think, I, 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 I think that the, the, uh, you know, the, the possibility that, uh, that uh, Christianity in particular and biblical religion in, uh, more, more generally is finished in the Western nations. I, I think that's I think that's quite possible. And um, if you know if 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 nothing dramatic happens, then uh, you know the, the future is is uh, re really really rather bleak. Now, but, but I, I want to get to you politically because if, if this has a political, it means that your political project. Is built on sand. No, my political project is, is is built on faith, and faith. Let me be quick and quickly explain what I mean by faith. Faith is not a belief that I know for certain what's going to happen. It's a it's a belief that uh, that I don't know what is for for sure what is going to happen. I I know that human beings. Let's go back to our uh, to our common uh, love of the skeptics for just a moment. I. I I know that human beings are terrible at seeing the future. I know that that uh, that almost no one foresaw the collapse of the Soviet Union, despite the fact that that my professors and and thousands of others were paid full time jobs to foresee it. There there were maybe two who saw it coming, and almost no one saw the the uh, the revival of nationalism and Brexit and the Trump years, and almost no no one saw the 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 collapse of the housing bubble in two thousand eight, and almost no one saw the takeover of of the neo Marxists in twenty twenty. And basically, we every major, really really major thing that happens, it turns out that most of us didn't see it coming, and as a consequence, I I, I have a a very clear view on the question of whether we should be optimistic or pessimistic. I think we should be neither. I think that 
my job as a religious person is to to try to plot a trajectory that with some help unexpected help from god could possibly lead things to improve and i'm not promising that it's going to happen i i know that there are still many places uh, in america and and even in europe where uh, where there are christian majorities or there are pro christian majorities that that is what i mean by pro christian majority is is a uh, a coalition which is um capable of looking at the neo marxist catastrophe that is coming and saying you know what um let's let's try a restoration of some some degree of of public christianity bible in the schools uh, a, a a a a a a a traditional uh, moral vision some version or another of it as an attempt to construct something that is strong enough and true enough to be able to actually defeat this monster that's what i'm proposing i know that there are there that that in america and other places there are majorities that are capable of uh, mustering to attempt that is that enough i i can't tell you that it is i can only tell you that we must try because what alternative do we have well here of course is the and that's just a very basic uh question with respect to religion in that sense uh as a as an animating principle for a political movement or a party it's uh what about the other religions it's that 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 when you do look at sort of 18th, 19th century uh, West, as it were, uh, uh, Christianity is incredibly dominant. Today, uh, obviously not as much. I think maybe growing up in England, which is such a secular place, and as a, as a devout Catholic, as a, as a kid, to be very much aware that you are a tiny minority here. And most people roll their eyes at even the thought of, of using a religious argument to defend a particular political position. So the question then becomes, how do you reanimate political religion without discriminating against uh, religious minorities or, or, or in some ways discriminating against a religious majority? Um, and I say irre irreligious yeah. majority even. And, and I think you could make an argument uh, that, that obviously that is not democratic. In other words, it's, 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 it's a semi-theocratic, but in a very tame way because you don't really have a lot of true believers uh, in your camp. Well, look, uh, I, I don't know how, I, I don't know how, how, how much of a theocracy and not a democracy is? I, I mean, I'm basically describing the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the form of government that existed uh, in uh, America and other Western countries up until the Second World World War. I mean, we're not talking about something from from 800 years ago. The, the when the Supreme Court overturns, um, uh, takes its first steps at the end of the 1940s to overturn uh, religion. Uh, established religion in the in the school system. What they are overturning is uh, in in most places is is is, is actually a, a rather pluralistic view of of religion. The particular the particular school system that that in 1948 um, ends up going to the Supreme Court and having having its uh, its religious teaching in the schools uh, struck down. The particular school system in, involved had had in the same school uh, Catholic instruction by by a priest 
Protestant instruction by a minister and, and even, believe it or not, Jewish instruction by a rabbi. And I'm not saying that, you know, that that is necessarily the best model. I am saying that what's going to have to happen now, and, and you know, at, the, at this point, I, I, I can say that we're already seeing it happening, is, uh, is that, that there is a, an a awakening, a revival of, uh, of uh, political Christianity in, uh, in all sorts of places in the United States. Most of the media have not yet uh, uh, noticed it because because they keep they keep talking when they keep talking about Christian nationalism, you know, uh, uh, when, when they talk about Christian nationalism, they're usually referring to to like a, a fringe kooky uh, minority. What they're not, what they're missing, is the fact that much of the gathering storm of resistance to. Uh, to woke neo-Marxism across the United States and in other countries is being led by Christians. It's being led by by devoutly religious people, both Catholics and Protestants, and they are they are at the local level. They're they're building coalitions with anti-Marxist liberals and with Jews and with other people that you know people think that, th that these Christian nationalists wouldn't be able to build coalitions, but at the moment they are doing so. And I don't pretend to say that, you know, that this is all going to be an unmixed blessing for everybody, because I don't know that. But what I, I think we are seeing is uh, we are seeing at the moment a, a, a political activist revival among Christians of a kind we have not seen since the 1980s. And uh, how far will that go? I can't tell you. Will it be enough? Will it be fast enough? I can't tell you, but I can tell you that that is what's coming. That's what's happening. So let's 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 just be specific here. So let's say it works. So you get a a national conservative president uh, or a national conservative. What? Give me give me just three things that you would legislatively or judicially change that would bring America closer to your vision. I just want to get to see what, practically speaking, what differences would make. Would you, what would you do? Would you ban abortion everywhere? No, certainly. Look, I, I, I I'm just, I'm just trying to get specific. No, it's fine. Look, Tell I'm, me. I'm going to be, I'm going to be a, a little bit cagey on specifics for a very simple reason that, that the national conservative movement, I mean, it has a statement of principles. You can read it. Many, many important people have signed it, but those, those principles are, are not down to the level of policy details for a very simple reason, which is that, that the, the most likely implementation of the kinds of things that we're talking about, the kind of principles that we're talking about um, are at the level of the states and not at the level of the federal government. So, um, because of that, so give me some state level actions that you would think of would think, be, let's say, indicative of this revival. I, uh, just, what would I, you look I, for? I think I think two places, two places where um, where where you can see um, you know examples of early nationalist conservative uh, government are are the state of Florida and uh, and and. Uh, and the country of Hungary, and in in both places, you have um, on the one hand there there certainly is a uh, a uh, an important um, uh, an important religious component to what's happening, and I think we'll see it more and more. On the other hand, um, the the actual governments 
are are being very very careful to make sure that that for example on the issue of abortion or on the issue of gay rights or pornography or any of the other kinds of things that we associate with the religious right that the steps that are being taken are so far careful steps uh, there that there there is a thus far a um a, a clear concern not for the government not to run ahead of the population to legislate things in the direction of uh, uh of traditionalism and 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 uh, uh and 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 a christian moral vision but only to the extent that the public is uh is willing to support it so those those national conservatives there certainly are some you know in our movement who are are, are talking about um a uh, about a nationwide abortion ban from the Supreme Court, uh, you know, through the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, there are such people. Um, I, I I respect them. I think they're mistaken, and I don't I don't think that that's likely to be what's going to happen. I think much. Well, when you look at the when you look at the poll, when you talk about getting ahead of the population, you look at the polling on abortion. Uh, the Republican Party's uh, current view that it should be illegal. Uh, largely, um, way out of step with way most people, including plenty of Republicans. I mean, when you say they're not, they're doing very. No, I, I just. I... So you see, like, let me give you an example. Let me go to the gay question because it's it's it obviously has some personal relevance for me. So yeah, sure. So they decide that they're not going to allow radical gender ideology to be taught to people, kids in kindergarten, uh, up until the, whatever, the third, fourth grade. Um, I'm in favor of banning that. I think it's crazy to introduce children at the age of three to Judith Butler, or even if it's dumbed down to such an extent that you're just telling children they can turn into a tree if they want to. Uh, but come on, given the, given, let's, let's take that as a serious effort. It's nothing. Has it? Will it in any way change how most people view gay people? Will it in any way change the number the, the number of gay people who are able to get married? Will it change the public culture? No, it's just preventing the most radical attempt to reindoctrinate children. Yes. it's not a. It's no, it, it's it's incredibly minor. Yes. So either it becomes oppressive or it's irrelevant. No, that's well, my okay. that's my question. Look, look, I I um <laughs> the. Before we were a conservative, starts from where we are, and where we are is not a religious country, at least uh, in the way that we ever used yeah, to. But be. I, I already look. I, I already granted that, and and I agree with it. And I, I I went further, and I said that as a as a general matter, imposition on the entire United States uh, fr fr from the center is is not, in my view. The way to go, and I don't. I, I think it's unlikely that that's what that that, that that's what's actually going to happen. But um, but now I don't want to go as far as your either or. Either it's minor or it's irrelevant. Okay, because let, I mean, let's just just, just take a, a few other things of the you know the the, the kinds of things that are like likely to be talked about. There there is an immense. Uh, uh, um, uh, motivation i think among uh, uh, among the, the the new generation of christian uh, intellectuals and politicians to uh, to um, uh, to to do away with having uh, pornography in every everyone's smartphones there's immense motivation among 
the, these people to uh, try to uh, reconstruct um, tax law and and uh, and uh, uh, industrial policy in such a way that uh, families become the center of the the uh, uh, the economic effort. There, there's an in, intense, I, I would say, burning desire to put an end to the idea that uh, that uh, that a corporation has the right to do things like uh, squelching speech that it doesn't want because of its monopolistic position the these are you know the the first big planks in in a uh, movement that's going to uh, unfold and it's going to develop i believe that you're going to see um to 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 see a a very strong push to re-christianize schools and i can't tell you in some places that might be public schools in other places it's going going to be on uh, you know on, on the basis of these old voucher ideas that we've been hearing for 40 years with almost no progress but the w what is going to happen is that we are going to see an attempt to create some kind of christian public life i think that in most places I'm I'm betting I'm hoping I'm not sure I think in most places that's going to be the result of the construction of a coalition uh which you know which will include people who are uh who are not personally religious they include Jews and Hindus and 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 Muslims but I think that having said that we're we're seeing the beginning of a reaction which is going to completely change the 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 dynamic from the right because the old idea that separation of church and state simply is the american inheritance is is in many places just finished and you know i, I think journalists and a lot of a lot of the public people that they, they they don't they, they aren't looking in the right places they don't understand what's coming the the uh the the marxist cultural revolution has created the justification for a deep rethinking and it's very very large yeah but this is part of what i can <laughs> part of what worries me is that in fact in the reaction to woke uh neo-marxism to just use a phrase that i don't think is that inaccurate actually i think it's it's if you know anything about political theory that is basically what it is that that illiberalism is summoning forth uh an equal and opposite illiberalism in which our liberal democracy is profoundly uh, a threat. Now, let me, let me just go to some present. The, the, the leader of the party that represents national conservatism, this re-Christianization, is Donald J. Trump. Uh, do you understand why some of us who look at an argument for re-Christianizing society and see it uh, symbolized by this monster slash buffoon uh, who violates every single conceivable <laughs> principle of Christianity or indeed conservatism, that at some point it lacks a certain amount of credibility because it has chosen to associate itself with this person or in the case of Georgia right now, that is associating itself with someone like Herschel Walker, um, a man who thinks abortion is no big deal as long as he gets to pay for it. Uh, there is such what appears to outsiders unbelievable 
hypocrisy here. And, or at best, if you weren't calling it hypocrisy, you call it instrumentalism. In other words, you, we're going to use this man because he's helpful to us, even though he represents in every single aspect of his entire life, personality and character, everything we supposedly despise. I mean, did you vote for this guy? Uh, no, but I, I, I don't vote in American elections. So okay. You, I, Would you have? Yeah. Don't, don't, I mean, how do you how do you well, argue? Don't, 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 I just I just don't. don't I don't, don't need to ask me counterfactuals. Let me just tell you about uh, about uh, my uh, my experiences uh, in in Israel. Uh, Israel has been led by uh, for for you know. A lot of the last generation has been led led by Benjamin Netanyahu, and Benjamin Netanyahu, in in uh, in uh, many respects, is uh, is actually looks a lot like uh, the nationalist conservative uh, figures that you know that that uh, that that we've seen elected. Um, I mean, th there is a family resemblance between uh, Netanyahu and Trump and. Uh, and the Brexiteers and Georgia Maloney and Orban, uh, and and you know you you can you can continue Modi. Uh, th there is a family resemblance. So, some of these people are more admirable, and some of them are less admirable. Um, and uh, and I don't I don't think that uh, any any one of these individuals um, is is going to make it up to the you know to the level of the uh, the ideal national leader that uh, that uh, uh, I. You know that I would want to be advocating for, but on the on the other hand, uh, yes, politics is instrumental, and it's not only instrumental, um, you know, for Marxists and liberals. It's also instrumental for 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 Christians and Jews. And uh, when I I I I worked many many years ago for uh, for Benjamin Netanyahu. This was decades ago, and um, and th th there was a. Uh, a well-known scene in uh, in Israeli politics where uh, Netanyahu was uh, Netanyahu was uh, uh, told that there was a videotape of uh, him with another man's wife, and he appeared on on uh, national television. <laughs> the whole country only had one one evening news show at the time, so the entire country turned on the television in order to have. Uh, Netanyahu um, uh, announcing that uh, you know that he had had this this marital affair and uh, and uh, and that it was all over and accusing his uh, accusing his uh, political rival of the time David Levy of of mafia tactics by having recorded him secretly and it, it, I, look you should just know this about uh, the story this story is not about Netanyahu it's about me I, I I picked up the phone and I called my rabbi and I told him um, my I, I said, look, I, I have to quit. I'd been, you know, working closely with him for 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 a number of years, and uh, and I, I told my rabbi, I can't do this. I, I I can't do it. I can't be sitting here when he's, you know, on television talking about, you know, talking about what he's doing and what he's accusing and all of these things. I can't do it. I can't continue. And my rabbi said, look, your your problem is that you do not you do not understand. The, the Talmud's view on politics. And the Talmud's view on, so I said, pray tell, tell me what, what it is. And what he said was um, that uh, the, the famous saying of the rabbis, that Jephthah in his generation is like Samuel in his generation. Jephthah, of course, is the is is, is, is a, a kind of semi-barbaric 
uh, figure uh, is his parent, a mother is a prostitute, his, his friends are criminals, and he saves sa saves Israel, and 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 then to thank God goes and 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 ritually sacrifices, kills his own his own daughter. All right, and you can easily say what this is what Scripture holds out. That's the kind of you know leader of a of a religious country, and of course the the answer is no. The rabbis say that in his generation, Jephthah is the best that they could find. Just as Samuel, who is really a a, a pious and godly man in a different generation, is the best that they could find. Uh, the, I mean, come on, no, Eric. not come, come on. on. This, uh, look, this, look, look, I'm look. sorry. This, you, what, this man is, this uh, man is uh, singularly uh, appalling at every you, level. You asked me a direct question. Yeah, I, I, okay. I'm, I'm giving you, you and I were talking, we were having a, a, a good time. And by the way, I, I, I really did appreciate the things that, that we agree about, about uh, skepticism and tolerance and so on. Part of, part of the same image, you don't have to agree with me, but I'd like you to hear this. Part of the same approach is pragmatism. And pragmatism means that you do with what it is that you have. That doesn't mean that you that you settle for it. It doesn't mean that you that you uh, raise any of these uh, political figures you know, to the level of of godly men if they're not. But if you are going to have a a winning Christianity or Judaism, that winning Christianity or Judaism is going to be pragmatist. And that means that it's going to have all sorts of things that are going to be reasonably considered to be hypocrisy about it. And that's politics. Now you tell me why I'm wrong. I, I get that. I get that. I, a level of hypocrisy is essential to political life <laughs> because we're all human. <laughs> I, Right, I'm, 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 I'm with you on that. I, I'm not. I don't think we should seek pure figures to run our lives. I think they're broken people, and they, that we got. But at the same time, this man is mentally unwell. He is delusional. He is a narcissist. He is violent. He endorses violence. He, he, he endorses sexual assault. I mean. Is there no level at which you say, okay, let's be pragmatic, but this is just too much? I mean, I'm going to quote you something that you say in your book about regenerating yeah, society. Please. And you say such a regeneration of the capacity for constraint requires a return at all levels to a public life in which honor and loyalty are at the very center. Nobody who writes that could possibly support Donald Trump. There is no restraint. There is no honor. There is no loyalty. There is no dedication to truth. It is the, he is one of the most appalling human beings I've ever come across in Look, my life, Andrew, to be honest. You know, and, and I don't my, think my, he's, my, I, don't, I my, think it must come a point my, when my, you say, my, this far, no further. Sorry, Yoram, go on. Andrew, I, look, I, I would like, primarily, I would like for you to, uh, to take my worldview as being represented but by, by what I wrote, and 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 yeah, and, of course, um, and I and I I believe that, and I it's not it isn't my job to endorse political candidates. You know, I I, I work for a nonprofit. I'm I'm I and my institution we are not going to be endorsing mm -hmm. political candidates, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, and you know at at the same time, uh, let let me just say that I think that um, that it is. Uh, possible to be um, to be uh, uncomfortable with uh, uh, with President Trump um, without 
uh, w without taking it as far as uh, as as what you just said. And I, I really don't I don't want to get into an argument with it because I I I I don't have a fundamental disagreement with people who are uncomfortable with him. But at the same time, I think that um, you know that that. Uh, some of those things are are exaggerated. For example, I you know I I, I don't think that he's uh, that that he's mentally unwell. I think that uh, being reckless is not the same thing as, as as being psychotic or mentally unwell. I know a little bit about uh, uh, mental illness, and he's not he's not mentally un, unwell. And we could, we we could quibble about some other things, but let me let me just say, with regard to his his historical uh, position, he. You know, like Nigel Farage and 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 uh, and other characters that that, uh, that you can name, in order to overturn the um, the consensus of the entire political establishment, which has been one kind of liberal or another for uh, for, for 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 sixty years, um, in order to challenge that, uh, it it turns out that you need personalities who have uh, the characteristic of being willing to tell uh, everybody to go to hell because you're going in a different direction. And uh, so, some of the things that uh, that you and others find uh, troubling about Trump go along with this kind of personality, which is willing to take on just about everybody. And one of the things that, you know, I, I, have, I have many friends who, you know, for from from you know from the, the the old days the old conservatism I've uh, met many friends who uh, when Trump uh, first appeared in in uh, fall of 2015 spring of 2016 they were telling me he look he's he's mentally ill he doesn't stand for anything um, and it, I didn't know the man so I you know at the beginning I simply assumed that my friends knew what they were talking about but when uh, when I heard his uh, acceptance speech at the Republican convention. Uh, I, I remember I was sitting with a, you know, with a uh, a family of uh, of old friends, and all of us were very worried. And I, I listened to him for an hour, and I told my friends, "Look, I'm sorry. I I think that I've just understood that many of the things he's accused of, not all, but many of the things that he's accused of by our friends, is because they don't understand that he's a nationalist." They don't understand what a nationalist is, and they don't understand what he's trying to do. They don't understand his concept of what it means to be uh, to to be loyal to the American nation. And he doesn't. The, the, he's basically he's 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 channeling an old school worldview that used to exist because he's an old man and he still remembers it. And that's that is the the flip side of uh, of Donald Trump, which allowed. Uh, him to to make an outsized contribution to uh, a dramatic change in in the the, the, polit the conservative political landscape. I don't know whether he's coming back. I, it may be that there'll be that, that 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 somebody better is going to arise. Maybe there won't be. But I, I would like to you know since my job is political theory much more than you know than electoral analysis. I think we need to look at this you know not. Not with the range of the last five years and the next five years, but what's going to happen in the next generation. And if we all do our jobs correctly, in the next generation, there's going to be a two-party system in the United States. R right now, you know, it seems like it's just c coming to pieces. And uh, you know, God willing, 
we will return to a two-party system. And, uh, and at least one of those parties is going to be much more nationalist and much more religious than, uh, than anything that we've seen in a long time. And I hope that those people, that most of them are, are, uh, are sufficiently responsible so that uh, you and, other, uh, and others will be able to say, look, I don't agree with this fellow, but you know, uh, he, he's obviously a decent, you know, a decent guy and, 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 and we're lucky to have him as the other side. I get that, Yoram. I think you are a decent guy, and, I'm, I'm, and I'd be very happy if you were <laughs> on the side. But I, I hope you also understand sure. my understand. own uh, uh, right. deep reservations about some of this. I understand. And, but I do. But I am. I do think that nationalism and the sense of a nation and the nation as the least harmful political unit that we could come up with, and the most inherently democratic, is a very important point. Um, and essential. And the decrial of nationalism and of the nation, or the, the inability to even understand it, to even understand why when, when, when Trump said, uh, if you don't have a border, you don't have a country, he was right. Um, and, and, and so there are many things that I agree with you on. Uh, I just, uh, I, I guess I'm just, I, I'm a deep, I believe that modernity is kind of here for good. And I don't think it's going to be turned back. And so my goal is to make it as least harmful as possible, understanding that many of the other alternatives could well be worse. Um, that's where I'm coming from, Euron. But I, I do... I would definitely like to turn back woke neo-Marxism, and, and I think there are ways in which we can do that. I just fear that with the alternative to woke uh, neo-Marxism is religious, and what most people would understand to be religious uh, theocracy of some kind, then it's not going to work. You need to have a broader coalition than that around slightly less uh, polarizing uh, themes. Yeah. Um, for example... Uh, you know, I think Reagan was a flawed person, a very flawed person in many ways. I do think he was a nationalist, even though he was a very much an internationalist in many ways. I think he deeply believed in the unique nature of America. Uh, literally, I also think that Thatcher was a deep nationalist in understanding why Britain matters. And I fully respect and, uh, and believe, actually, share with you the importance of the unchosen things the importance of the country you're born into, the tradition you grew up in, the loyalty that one has to one's own. I think the inability to understand that by liberals is a terrible failure and has led them into all sorts of blind alleys. Um, but I am not, um, unlike you, prepared to junk what I would call conservative liberalism, uh, at least minimalist liberalism at some level in the process. But I am thrilled to talk to you. And I, I recommend this book, Conservatism Rediscovery. I think those of you who are interested in political philosophy and interested in conservatism itself, it's a really terrific. It's, it's a very accessible and interesting uh, summary of an argument. Um, and uh, I think it's worth taking seriously, very seriously. And uh, Yoram, I'm, I'm so grateful for the book and I'm grateful to have this lively and uh, what they used to call free and frank exchange views. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that if in the trenches against neo-Marxism, I'm with you every single step of the way. I'm just not going to be able to follow you in some directions rather than others. Well, I, I, uh, I, I hope that there will be a, a a strong camp which is 
uh, able to negotiate with and ally, it, ally itself with uh, anti-Marxist liberals, uh, many of whom are, you know, are, are, are still folk heroes and, and admired figures, uh, even deep in the Christian uh, conservative circles. So, you know, the, there are scenarios where this could, could uh, uh, work out to be a very fruitful um, uh, kind of a coalition, even on those things uh, where we deeply disagree. And uh, thank you for allowing me to, you know, to share my views with your listeners. Oh, absolutely! It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure. I would. The only thing I'd have to say with you is, um, I'd really love to talk to you one day about Michael Oakeshott and and his contribution. He's not really in your book at all, uh, and yet probably the most, to my mind, the most important modern political theorist of conservatism. But another time. Right. Um, we can we can talk to Leo Strauss. We can talk oh, all sorts yes. of things. Um, uh, Yoram, thank you so much again. Thanks, listeners, for coming and 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 enjoying this conversation. If you did, please, if you did, and appreciate the fact that it's not filled with ads or horrible self promotion, subscribe, support us, help us to keep these open sources of debate alive. I mean, there aren't many places actually where someone like Yoram can come and in a way that is not rigged actually explain his point of view and get feedback and to my mind that is liberal democracy um and and practicing it is important and if you believe in that please support us and we have some great guests coming up we're going to have christopher caldwell coming up to straight from europe to tell us what's going on there what what the impact is of events in italy and france even the new strange libertarian movement in Britain that came out of nowhere to destroy the Conservative Party, all sorts of other things we can talk about. But um, we'll see you soon. And thanks for thanks for listening. God bless.